Hi, I'm Mark Reed. Follow me as I attempt to put my new book, Impact Culture, into practice and discuss it with others taking a similar journey. You'll get tips that will help you achieve more impact from your research and stay healthy, no matter how busy you are. Rediscover your purpose. Lead from behind to empower those around you. Transform your work culture. Welcome to Season 4 of the Fast Track Impact Podcast. Hello everyone, how are you doing? We are going to be looking at a few challenging issues in today's episode. And this is going to be the first of three episodes where we're going to have a look at some of the deeper root causes for why some of us have very challenging relationships with work, uh, some of the things that might be driving our workaholism, uh, some of the errors of judgment perhaps that we feel we've made, the things we've agreed to do that we really shouldn't have agreed to have done. Uh, and crucially, some of the reasons why we find it so hard to change our relationship with work. Uh, so uh, I'm going to be looking today at issues around perfectionism and people-pleasing, and I'll be drawing on the relevant chapter of my new book, Impact Culture. So I'm going to introduce some stuff, um, throw a few ideas around, and uh, and then hand you over to the chapter itself. And I'll follow a similar format in the next two weeks. Uh, but just to warn you, there may be a little bit of a delay between episodes coming up, because uh, in Scotland, where I live, it is the uh, summer holidays coming up. This is our uh, our last week of uh, of school, uh, so uh, uh, my my kids will be uh, celebrating this evening <laughs> when they come in from school. Uh, the holidays are here, um, uh, and a shout out to this point uh, at this point to my eldest daughter Hazel, who is my podcast producer. Uh, so uh, so she has uh, a, a job um, uh, doing uh, various things for the company, and one of those things is uh, is the podcast. Um, so I think she will be doing some work over the summer holidays, um, but uh, but yeah, uh, holidays come first in our household, so uh, we may or may not uh, be getting a, a, a delay uh, between this and the next few episodes, but if you can bear with me, uh, hopefully you're going to be holding on with, uh, with excitement and anticipation after today's episode. Nothing like building it up. Uh, uh, so... Uh, People-pleasing and perfectionism, wow, such important issues, um, and I would say under uh, underemphasized. Uh, we need to look at these because I think so many of us struggle with these uh, without realizing. And in fact, maybe we do realize and we actually legitimize it. Well, it's a good thing, isn't it, Mark, to be a perfectionist if I'm an academic? Because if I get stuff wrong, then people might die, depending on my discipline. Um, yeah, this is not something you can be slapdash about. You need to be sure of your evidence. <laughs> and of course, I'm not going to challenge uh, anything like that. Uh, and yet, uh, that, uh, that, that pivotal article that, that you're writing that has not seen the light of day yet, uh, is it because you need it to be perfect uh, before you put it out there? Or actually, uh, is it that uh, there's a, this deep gnawing fear of what your co-authors will say when they spot all the things that are wrong with it, which is why you can't ever seem to actually get it sent out to your colleagues? 
Uh, and worse than that, um, you know that when it comes back from review, you're going to have a whole load of other things that are going to be spotted, and all of your co-authors are going to see the review comments as well. And it's just hard. Uh, but that's just one example of this. Um, uh, but perfectionism, great. It can drive us to go the extra mile to do something uh, of incredible quality, or it can just be paralyzing. And the same applies to people-pleasing, uh, but the effects are somewhat different. Um, how many things have you said yes to that you later regretted? Uh, and very often it was just our ego that was saying, yeah, wow, you've invited me to do that? Of course, I have to say yes. Uh, and then you've said yes, and you're like, what? How on earth am I going to fit in this work? And now I'm working evenings and weekends. I'm pushing other things out of my diary, which in fact were more important <laughs> in order to be able to stand up on stage and get those international accolades for this incredible invitation that I have accepted that I probably shouldn't have. <laughs> um, uh, but... Uh, but that need uh, for external gratification uh, just drove what I do, or actually just the daily process of answering my emails before doing the things that are actually more important uh, and answering all of those emails today. In fact, within an hour, uh, actually, yeah, will anyone mind if it waits until tomorrow? Uh, uh, do, do all of the, well, in my case, uh, regular people who send emails asking if they can be my PhD student, um, uh, and they're not even sure what my discipline is, and uh, they're two positions ago um, uh, asking if they can work at BCU or Newcastle, and I don't even work there anymore. It's clear this is, uh, they've sent this to hundreds of people, uh, and yet I had this, this need to reply to them all. And you know what? Yeah, life is too short to answer all of my emails. And maybe that sounds harsh, but there are more important things and you have to prioritise what is actually important rather than just keeping everyone who contacts you happy. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, hopefully I've, I've, I've explained this in a way that uh, that makes you realise, hmm, uh, there's something of me in uh, in at least one of these issues, uh, and maybe we need to look a little bit more deeply at this. And the suggestion that I'm going to make in the chapter, as you'll hear in a moment, uh, is that there are three types of este esteem. Uh, so self-esteem is what I'm talking about here. Uh, and we can have these in healthy uh, amounts, or they can tip over into toxic levels. So uh, we all need relational esteem. We need to know that we are valued by others. Um, a human being uh, is, uh, has evolved to be a cooperative social animal. Uh, and if we are entirely isolated, uh, if we have no relationships, no friendships, uh, no one who values us, uh, then the research evidence is clear. It will take decades off your life. <laughs> we can't survive. We need uh, that, uh, that, that sense of being part of a community of people who know us and like us and respect us. Uh, and yet, it, it is when that need becomes toxic that I can't survive without that external gratification, that uh, approval from others, that I start seeking that approval in everything that I do. I start, uh, I allow that to influence the decisions I make. And I later regret many of those decisions because they were just <coughs> actually too satisfy some lack in me rather uh, than, uh, than actually uh, genuinely helping someone. And that's the, the most common uh, uh, thing that I hear from people. Why do you do what you do? To help others. Uh, and great, uh, but actually, is it really about helping others? Or is it really just actually about uh, get, getting that buzz uh, from people saying thank you to you? 
Uh, and uh, if uh, perfectionism is uh, your vice of choice, uh, then it is likely that achievement-based esteem might be behind this. And again, achievement-based esteem, yeah, we all need to know that what we do has a value in the world. Um, I have achieved something, I've done something of worth, and I can see that what I am doing, how I am spending my time matters. We all need that. We all need that sense of purpose and that feedback uh, on what we are doing. And yet it can slip into this toxic level of uh, achievement-based esteem where I have to achieve uh, and it becomes like this drug and if I'm not getting the successes then I can't help but feel like I'm a failure uh, and it becomes increasingly hard to deal with uh, failure and the only way to do that is to try and find a new success and so you uh, try and find easier things that can give you that buzz of achievement um, and very often uh, this is what drives workaholism just that next hit that next achievement uh, that next accolade that next step up that next promotion or whatever it might uh, it might be so pause and check in with yourself at this point uh, yeah relational esteem achievement based esteem we all need it is this in a healthy balance for you or is it kind of tipping over in certain circumstances can you think of an example recently even where it became toxic for you and drove a decision that you kind of regret now in both cases, I'm going to suggest that there is a sense of lack, a psychological lack, somewhere deep, that is searching for fulfillment. Uh, and uh, the problem that we have is, as academics, uh, it is incredibly easy and acceptable to go to your work to find fulfillment in these places. Uh, so uh, the idea that we are helping others, I'm here to help students, I'm always available, no matter what might go wrong in the department, I am that person who makes sure I'm there and I pick up the pieces. Um, and actually, yeah, uh, gradually I'm beginning to resent this, and for good reason, because nobody else is doing this, and someone has to do this. Um, uh, but why am I not tackling this and talking to my colleagues about this? Because, well, maybe actually if there's something here that is driving me to this, uh, that I need this. Uh, is there that tension in you? The, this idea of, of achieving, but I think embedded within this, this drive to achievement, often for many of us, is a drive to be right. Uh, and that sense of being validated uh, externally uh, by others uh, or by the world as we get our paper into that journal, we see the, the cover of our book with our name on the front. It's more than just achievement uh, and saying, uh, I am good enough because I do things which are good enough. It's that sense of being right, being justified. Uh, and of course, by implication, everyone else is not as right as I am. And that sense of, you know what, I am better uh, than everyone else. So, although I'm not voicing it, although it's kind of subconscious, that's that need to prove that I'm right um, actually puts me uh, a level above everyone else. And so the suggestion that I'm going to make is that we need to loosen our grip on that desire, that need, that drive to fill that sense of lack through our work. Uh, and ultimately, the, the, the approach that I'm going to suggest, which I'll leave you to think about more based on the stuff I'm writing about that you'll hear in a moment, is, uh, is intrinsic esteem. Uh, can I draw on that instead? The sense of, you know what, I have value simply because I am me. Uh, in the uh, podcast uh, episode I put out last week, in the blog that, uh, that I published last week, I talked about uh, a meditation exercise that I found useful, where I breathe in and say I, breathe out and say am, uh, and breathing in and out I say I am here now in this. 
uh, and maybe adding with you to, to add a spiritual component to that if, uh, if I want to. Uh, but I'll often just start and just stick with that I am. I am. You know what? Actually, I am. That's enough. Uh, I don't need to have any of these things in terms of my family, my relationships, my work. Just me. I am. I exist. And the fact that I exist, that's enough. And I'm just going to dwell in that place of consciousness that, that I exist, that I am, that I am being in this moment now as who I am. <laughs> Uh, and that, I find that incredibly, incredibly powerful uh, to try and just identify where I am holding on to these other things to give me that sense of identity or purpose or, or, or whatever else. <clears throat> and, uh, and very often at that point, uh, I identify those places of discomfort. And I think the key lesson that I want to conclude with is this idea that we value discomfort. Uh, and I think that when we get that sense of cognitive dissonance, that sense of lack, uh, we go to our work. Um, uh, when our work goes wrong, it didn't give us what we expected. We go to distraction or medication. Uh, let's uh, have an extra glass of wine or a midweek glass of wine uh, in front of a TV episode or whatever it might be. And uh, and yeah, I'm feeling good again now, but actually I, I didn't really deal with what was going on <laughs> in terms of why that particular rejection um, email uh, hurt so so fundamentally, so so deeply. Um, uh, and, uh, and I'm asking what that discomfort has for me. What is the message it's trying to tell me? Uh, so rather than ignore it, medicate it, distract myself from it, I actually listen to it, which is an uncomfortable thing to do, but I listen and I say, yeah, so why is it that it hurts so much to be wrong in this case, uh, to have lost that argument? Uh, I've been talking to one of my, my kids recently who's been really upset um, uh, by the recent um, uh, decision around abortion in America uh, and one of her friends who violently disagrees with her on this particular issue and uh, and their disagreement is getting to a place where it is is threatening their, their friendship, their relationship. Um, uh, and uh, my plea to her is, you know what, it is possible to have differences of opinion and still be friends with people uh, and that, uh, to ask yourself why it matters so much to be right uh, on something that you feel so deeply about. Uh, and without making any judgments on, on, on that case and whether she is right or wrong, that sense of just loosening your grip, being able to stand back from this thing that you're so emotionally involved with and, and from a distance now be able to take a step of empathy to those people who you fundamentally <laughs> disagree with and try and understand why on earth do you think like this? And okay, yeah, I still don't agree with you, but perhaps now I understand why you think as you do and perhaps that is enough to be able to accept you, to tolerate you in my space with these fundamentally different views without having to agree. Uh, uh, but but why? Why do I need to, to be right? Why do we all need to be right? It's this fundamental drive. Uh, and is there a deeper thing that we can do in order to just accept? You know what? Who knows? Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, who knows? Maybe you're right. Uh, and you know what? Actually, it doesn't really matter. Um, I, I've just helped someone and you know what? They didn't listen. In fact, worse than that, they threw it back in my face. Uh, what was the point of all of that? Uh, and actually, you know what? If you say that you are about helping people, this is not about manipulating people, getting people to do what you think they should do. And if someone says, you know what? I don't want to listen to you. I'm going to do the opposite. That shouldn't matter if you are genuinely for them. But actually, if it really matters to you and people don't follow your advice, 
Uh, and in fact, if you are an advice giver, full stop, then maybe, just maybe, that, uh, that drive to help comes from a slightly different place and you need to look at that. Uh, or the last time you achieved something and you didn't get a thank you from your head of department. Uh, you uh, reached your 10-year service point and no one sent you an email. Uh, you went out for lunch to celebrate by yourself. You took a photograph, you put it on social media, you got lots of sympathy. But actually, why do I need that? Why, why is it so important to me? What is that telling me about my need to be recognised, to be externally validated? And I'm not saying, of course, that, that, we, uh, that we shouldn't recognise our colleagues when they achieve things, but, uh, but we, can look, we can look deeper. What are those feelings telling us? And instead of distracting ourselves, um, hiding from this, we listen uh, to uh, the, the people pleaser within me. I listen to the perfectionist within me. And I start to ask what the roots are of those parts of me. And I start to deal with them in more healthy ways. So let's hand over to the chapter now. Chapter 5. Overcoming People-Pleasing and Perfectionism When do you do your most creative work? Under what conditions do you work most effectively? I was forced to come up with answers to these questions a few years ago when colleagues started to become curious about how I seemed to consistently achieve so much in so little time. Driven partly by the embarrassment of being unable to mentor these colleagues who were asking for help, and partly by my own curiosity, I embarked on a project to understand what was going on, which culminated in my last book, The Productive Researcher. What I discovered was a powerful, positive feedback loop between my purpose and my motivation, which gave me an unusual level of concentrated focus. Working on average 37 hours per week in the three years since publishing that book, I published more than 30 peer-reviewed papers, seven as first author, led four projects worth over £2 million and contributed to eight more, and trained over 5,000 researchers from more than 200 organisations in 55 countries through my company, Fast Track Impact. However, as I tried to mentor and train researchers in my approach, I discovered five barriers that consistently prevented people from making progress. People-pleasing, perfectionism, imposter syndrome, fear of failure, and disciplinary labels. In the next three chapters, I want to show you how I have helped colleagues tackle each of these issues, empowering them to focus on the things that are most important to them and enabling them to fall in love again with what they do. However, to overcome these myself, I've found professional help to be invaluable and regularly recommend that colleagues find themselves a coach who is also a trained counsellor in case any of the barriers they identify have roots that are deeper than they expected. The art of fitting in. If you've ever tried too hard to fit in with a group of people, you will be familiar with the unique sense of loneliness you feel when you are accepted by a group for a version of yourself that you thought they would like and have to hide your true self to maintain their acceptance. People-pleasing is part of our evolutionary heritage. As a social species, we need the security of being accepted as part of a tribe. Perhaps as a result, belonging to a group where you feel loved and accepted is a basic psychological need. When we have the courage to be ourselves and find people who appreciate us, there is little else that feels so liberating. 
However, when we think the people around us do not appreciate or approve of us, there is an overwhelming temptation to edit out the parts of ourselves that will drive people away and present an acceptable version of ourselves to the world. Over time, this creates dissonance at such a deep level that it eventually becomes impossible to be happy with the group you spent so long striving to be accepted by. I've always struggled to fit in with stereotypically masculine men, and so felt particularly intimidated by the prospect of travelling for two months with four such men on a reconnaissance trip to prepare for my PhD research in the Kalahari Desert, Botswana. I visited more pubs in the days it took us to travel through South Africa to our study sites than I'd visited in my whole life until that point, sipping slowly and pretending to enjoy the beers they ordered me. I tried to laugh in the right places, but had no idea how to enter into the banter. When we got to the field, they explained that we would be taking samples along transects in a national park that was famous for having the highest density of lions anywhere in Africa. When I asked what would happen if we met a lion, they laughed and suggested that I had nothing to worry about, as with my long legs, I'd get back to the Land Rover before anyone else. I felt uneasy about the plan, but didn't have the confidence to counter the bravado of my colleagues. When we arrived at the park, my colleagues mocked a large sign forbidding anyone to get out of their vehicle on any account. It was only at this point that we began to seriously discuss how we would collect our data without being eaten by lions. Luckily, I had visited a hardware store in the capital city the day before and had come prepared. Unluckily, however, the knife I had bought turned out to be a carving knife which easily bent if I attempted to stab anything. Luckily, I had a plan B. I knew animals were afraid of fire, so I had also bought a can of hairspray and a lighter in the hardware store that day. Unluckily, however, the lighter took at least five attempts to light, and I would have been eaten before the hairspray ever turned into a flamethrower. I left my purchases in the Land Rover, and we took it in turns to stand on the roof, looking for lions, while the others collected data. As it happened, we didn't see a single lion in the whole time we were travelling through the park, and the only thing that was injured was my ego, as my colleagues laughed about my failed plans to protect myself from the imaginary lions. I've laughed at the story many times since, but at that moment I wished I was anywhere but here, with these men, drinking warm beer around a campfire. I missed my wife, who loved me for who I was, and despite being in the company of these men every day for over a month, I felt more alone than I had felt since the church camps my parents used to send me on as a child. It wasn't until near the end of the trip that I came to my senses. We were sitting in the sand around a campfire, after having eaten yet another meal of baked beans and corned beef stew. That evening, after consuming more beer than usual, the conversation turned to sexual conquests. The stories disgusted me, and for the first time as everyone else laughed together, I got up and told them I was going to bed. To laugh along with these stories required me to cross a line, and that line defined a part of who I was. It took seeing that very obvious line in the desert sand for me to realise that I had actually crossed it weeks before, the day I decided to try and be the kind of person they wanted me to be so I could fit in. I decided that day that when I returned to the desert, I would do so alone. 
over the following four years by myself in the company of the plants and animals of the Kalahari. I never once felt the loneliness I experienced during those two long months of trying to fit in. And while there were no jokes to laugh at, I often found myself laughing spontaneously with joy as I walked home through the desert sunset after a day cataloguing plants. Getting to the heart of people-pleasing At the heart of people-pleasing is relational self-esteem. I have value because others value me. The evolutionary and psychological roots of this type of esteem run so deep in most of us that it is hard to see how much of ourselves we view through the eyes of those around us. The first time you are likely to realise how dependent you are on this form of self-esteem is when the people you love or respect turn against you. Your initial reaction to the disapproval of others may be a sense of loss or anger. However, over time it is likely that you will start to hold yourself in contempt, as you are held in contempt by significant others, no matter how hard you try to tell yourself that they have misunderstood you. As a result, you may go to humiliating lengths to seek forgiveness and regain approval, or seek out two-dimensional new relationships with the kind of people who will look up to you and give you the external validation you need. Workaholism is not the answer either, although for researchers it is a tempting option given the formula our work gives us to get external validation from the entire world when we get an important piece of writing published. Achievement-based self-esteem is just as brittle and liable to be shattered by circumstance as relational self-esteem. More on that in the next section. Tackling the root cause the only sustainable answer is to build intrinsic self-esteem. I have value because I am me. I was blown away recently to discover that my eight-year-old daughter already knew this. She was telling me how sad her brother and sister had made her feel, and I told her that no matter what they might think of her or say to her, she didn't have to listen to them or believe them. But she didn't need my advice. She was already there. Her matter-of-fact response was beautiful. Daddy. I know I'm good because I'm me, and that's all I need to be. I hope she holds on to that for the rest of her life. But if you, like me, grew up thinking that you were only good enough when you had done enough to please your parents, then you will know that such truths are hard won. If I've done something that lets my wife down badly and she's upset with me, I psychologically crush myself. I do the same when I get into trouble for something at work. As I see the disappointment, or worse, on my wife or boss's face, I can't help feeling ashamed and hating myself. Then, once I finish punishing myself psychologically, I get angry with them because they made me feel so bad, when in fact it was me who was punishing myself the whole time. In reality, my misdeeds are typically minor, and usually involve losing or forgetting things at home and organisational mishaps at work. But my reaction is disproportionate and people-pleasing is what I do to avoid these situations from occurring again in future. So, how can we stop people-pleasing? For me, the only answer is to go deep and tackle the root of the issue. When people are not pleased with me, i found the most effective way to deal with the rising panic is to apply the principles of mindfulness and transactional analysis. 
First, I become mindful of that gnawing sense of unease and nervousness, and rather than pushing it back down and ignoring it, I make time in my day to look at that unease in the face and listen to what it is telling me. When my fears speak, they do so in an exaggerated, childlike voice, catastrophizing and generalizing. But I ask what is there and allow the fearful child inside me to elaborate the sensationalist story of how this mistake will ultimately cost me my job, how I won't be able to pay my mortgage, and somehow, as a result, I'll lose my marriage, my children, and my whole life. Now I've heard the whole story, I realize it's little wonder that I felt slightly uneasy earlier in the day. Now the story is told, I have the power to challenge it and explain to the frightened little boy inside why it is highly unlikely to be that bad. There might even be some silver linings. Even if it does look bad, I'll still be all right. I'll still be me, and I'll still love me, and to prove it, I visualize giving the little boy a calming hug and hum a lullaby into his tousled hair. Adult me to boy me. Doing this takes practice, and you need to make space to reflect and identify the stories and characters that are playing out before your eyes. Like a muscle, I have found that I need to remind myself of these practices daily to build the kind of muscle memory that enables me to apply transactional analysis instinctively. You can love parts of yourself that you never learned to love and build intrinsic self-esteem one bruising situation after another, until eventually the frightened, shamed or angry little boy or girl inside knows that you're there for them, no matter what they do, and you love them unconditionally. You are free to be the adult you are. You no longer need others to respect you before you can respect yourself. You no longer need to be loved, respected, or even liked by the people around you to feel good about yourself. You can overcome people-pleasing. The paralysis of perfectionism. Perfectionism is often held up as something to be admired in the academy, given the importance of rigor and attention to detail in good research. But while aspiring to perfect our work as far as possible as a mark of our passion and dedication, being driven to produce perfection can quickly and easily become pathological because perfection is by definition unattainable. If everything you publish has to be perfect, then you will never submit anything for review, and if you do publish something eventually, you may later want to retract it as you learn and develop further and realise how you should have written it. I've worked with many researchers who are paralysed by perfectionism. First, you need a long enough block of time in which to write. This is typically measured in weeks by early career researchers and consecutive days by most other researchers, but neither are realistic for most people. As a result, the perfect, uninterrupted time never appears in your schedule. Even if you can get a couple of consecutive days blocked out for writing, you need the perfect writing environment, and so you waste time tidying and cleaning or travelling to a retreat that turns out to have more distractions than you expected. Even when you find the perfect place to write for the perfect amount of time, it still isn't good enough because you failed to create the psychological space you need to write. In my experience, this is far more important than any other factor. 
Researchers who are able to create psychological space find themselves able to write creatively in noisy and cramped snatches of time on their way somewhere or between appointments in a busy week. The researcher who has not prepared a psychological space in which to write may be plagued by both people-pleasing and perfectionism. You will constrain and entirely crowd out your writing time with tasks for other people you want to please. And when you do sit down to write, you may get the sudden stabbing realisation that you've forgotten that you promised something to someone else. So you prioritise that because you don't want it hanging over you as you try and write, and you never find time to write. All you wanted was two days in a month, or half a day at the end of the week, and you consistently allow other things to take over, and you use that time to please others. A couple of days in a month, or a couple of hours in a week is not selfish. So what does your inability to write say about how much you value yourself? If you do manage to make the time to write, however, you may then be plagued by the ghosts of critical colleagues and reviewers who have criticised your work in the past. My second paper was dismissed by a journal editor in a one-line response I'll never forget. This manuscript reads like a bad term paper. I laugh about it now, but reviews like that suck. And they can suck the confidence right out of you as you write. Now you can hear Reviewer 2 whispering over your shoulder as you write and rewrite the same sentence over and over again. And far from perfecting your writing, you end up staring at a blank page. Moreover, to avoid criticism, you continue perfecting and never submitting your work for review because you know it isn't perfect. It is this fundamental lack of confidence that ultimately drives every perfectionist I've met. But far from protecting you, perfectionism leads to paralysis, which further fuels your lack of confidence, which in turn fuels your perfectionism in a downward spiral. Even worse than this, perfectionism in teams leads to unrealistic expectations and criticism. Now, despite knowing that you are your own harshest critic, you can't help finding fault with everyone around you, especially if they are overtaking you with their slapdash approach. Finally, for those who actually manage to achieve something close to perfection, there is the danger that perfectionism transforms into pride. Now you believe that your work is indeed the best, and nobody else can come anywhere near the levels of rigour and insight you are capable of. You become unbearable to work with, and a target for people who want to take you down a peg or two. So when you do eventually make a mistake, nobody has any pity for you, and you come crashing down from such a great height that you do yourself a psychological injury from which you might never recover. Getting to the heart of perfectionism. At the heart of perfectionism is achievement-based self-esteem. I have value because I achieve things of value. The paralysed perfectionist never submits anything for review and so they never achieve anything further reinforcing their lack of self-esteem. The narcissistic perfectionist builds their whole self-image on their achievements so when they fail, as will inevitably happen at some point, they don't just fail, they are a failure. The whole facade they built comes crashing down, and they discover that there is nothing of value left if their achievements mean nothing. 
It is this subconscious knowledge that drives the narcissist to cling to their achievements in the face of overwhelming evidence that they are wrong, because to be wrong is to lose their very sense of self. Tackling the root causes If you want to tackle perfectionism, you need to learn how to embrace imperfection. And to do that, you first need to have compassion on your imperfect human nature, with all its flaws, weaknesses, and vulnerabilities. You are not perfect, and so your work will never be perfect. But in your imperfection, there is character, experience, laughter, gratitude, and meaning. You have embraced imperfection when you have learned to love, or at least accept, the parts of yourself that you used to hate. Instead of hating your lack of organisation and direction, you now accept that you'll never be particularly organised, and embrace the random opportunities and ideas you stumble across that others who work in straight lines miss. Instead of hating the fact that you never seem to be able to finish anything, you embrace the fact that you are an ideas person, and start working in teams with people who help you bring your ideas to fruition. Or maybe you were always the finisher of other people's ideas, and now you value the fact that you got to put the idea into practice without worrying about when you're going to have your own eureka moment. There is one last thing you need to do if you want to become aware of the power of perfectionism and loosen your grip on control. Perfectionism demands that things are done right, which typically translates to my way. And the reality of most decisions and actions in life is that there are many ways of seeing and doing that could be right, depending on your perspective. Someone joked during the recent coronavirus outbreak that, since lockdown began, my husband and I have been playing my way is best. There are no winners. Whether it is the right way to peel carrots, or the right way to write a paper, or solve a problem in a project, the perfectionist finds it hard to see alternative visions of perfection, because none of these visions are as good as their solution. The perfectionist needs control, and when you give people the freedom to do things their own way, you lose control over the outcome you are seeking. It feels like these people with alternative ideas are stealing the perfectionist's freedom to pursue their perfect vision, when in fact the opposite is true. When perfectionists join, and especially lead, teams, they have to loosen their grip on control in order to give creative freedom to their colleagues. This of course means trusting others, and an inability to trust is another key driver of perfectionism. But how do you trust when your trust has been broken badly in the past? There are no easy answers here, but one thing I've noticed in common with all the perfectionists I have worked with is that when you really get beneath the surface, they don't trust themselves. People who trust others typically have a healthy degree of trust in themselves to start with, and so I'm going to suggest that the first step towards trusting others is to understand why you don't trust yourself and work on that. When you do this, you are likely to discover your own failures and shortcomings that secretly haunt you and that are driving your inability to trust others who may fail in similar ways to you. This in turn drives your need for control, and this in turn drives your perfectionism.
How do you start trusting yourself? Again, the answer is to focus on building your intrinsic value. There are no exercises or practices I can teach you to loosen your grip on perfectionism. Your trainer will be the circumstances of your own life, if you can become more aware of the times when you fall prey to perfectionistic, all-or-nothing thinking. The key is to let this trainer teach you, day by day, and be dogged in your determination to embrace imperfection and lose some control. As an imperfect researcher like every other, you will leave behind the airbrushed version of yourself that you needed to feel secure. As a result, you are a more authentic researcher with your own unique voice that includes all the beauty of your blemishes. You can empathise with others in their imperfections and give them the same compassion you give yourself when mistakes happen. As a researcher who is no longer in control of every aspect of your life, things can feel uncertain and scary at times, but also exhilarating, creative and together as you build increasing trust with those around you and learn to learn from them. You are able to accept that the outcome of a team or participatory process might be different to the one you had envisioned, and even if it isn't as good, it might still be good enough. While you may have had to constrain your own freedom of action to let this happen, you have given the gift of creative freedom to your team. And as you give up some individual control to embrace the uncertain and messy reality of a team solution, you may be surprised at how enjoyable the process is and how creative the outcomes are. It is possible to overcome perfectionism. 